Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We are in a verse-by-verse series and have been for a couple years now on the book of Romans. And we come this morning to chapter 13. Invite your attention there. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 is our text today. Now, as you're turning there, you will remember that we made it to chapter 12 a few weeks ago. And there we found a clear shift of emphasis. For the first 11 chapters, Paul spoke almost exclusively of doctrine, specifically the doctrine of justification by faith, the answer to the question, how are we to be made right with the Holy God? But beginning in chapter 12, he began to apply that doctrine to everyday living. That is because we are saved, forgiven, and secure in Christ, as chapters 1 through 11 declare we are, our lives should be different. They should be transformed. Particularly, the way we relate to others is forever changed. Now, in chapter 12, he began with our relationship with God. He says that is fundamentally changed. We're no longer enemies of God. Uh, Every day we view ourselves as a living sacrifice and we present ourselves to God's usefulness, holy and acceptable to Him. And then uh, verses 3 through 13, we see that salvation also changes our relationship to other believers. We view ourselves now as part of the body of Christ. Each one of us has an important role to play and we submit to each other, not counting ourselves more important than we should. And then last week, we looked at our relationship to the lost world, particularly those who are hostile to us and and to the gospel, that we are not to overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That is, we are to treat them well. And where we left it last week at the end of the service was, there are people in the world who are bound to hate us because of our relationship to Jesus. But if they hate us, they should have to hate the kindest, most merciful people people that they know. And so now we come to chapter 13. Here in chapters 13, 1 through 7, we see what Paul has to say about a believer's relationship to human government. Next week, we're going to examine the believer's relationship with money. So I would say people who say the Bible is not relevant for today have never read it. And so we don't want to be guilty of not reading the Bible. Let's read our text, Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now you need to understand the historical context that Paul is writing to. 
not only is this letter addressed to Christians in the city of Rome, as you know, the Roman Empire by that time had expanded to most of the modern uh, then world. It was a period of time known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They had established road systems and aqueducts and um, a system that the world had never seen before. And there was a time of, of relative peace. Things were prosperous. And yet to keep up the city and to keep up the needs of such a growing population, there was heavy taxation burdensome taxation in many of the outlying regions like Israel who were overtaxed uh, began to chafe under that and so it was not unusual especially in Israel for there to be uh, rebellions and so Paul is addressing that what is the Christian's role and relationship to their government and so fundamentally he says that role is to submit now of course Paul likely had heard the objections from Christians about paying their taxes some probably said things like, well, we have no king but Jesus. After all, we are heavenly citizens. Uh, the scripture says that our, our kingdom is not of this world, so why should we have to pay taxes in this world? Uh, many of them probably um, argued that the emperor, who at this time was Nero, that you read about in your history books, was a tyrant. And he certainly was. He was an evil man. And so they thought, well, we are exempt from paying our taxes because we don't like the emperor. By the way, does any of that sound vaguely familiar to you? <laughs> that, that, that we can not submit or we can speak ill of our officials if we don't like them. Well, people don't change. Times change, but people don't. See, the same arguments that folks were making in Jesus' day and today caused him to famously say, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now from that simple statement, many people have concluded that what Jesus was teaching is that the government and the church exist in two separable, separate spheres, that they don't have anything to do with one another. That's not at all what Jesus was teaching. In fact, very close to the opposite of what he was teaching. What he was saying and what Paul is clearly saying in Romans 13 is that God is the God of every sphere. Yes, in the church, obviously, but also in human government. And that really is my first point from verse 13. Look at the establishment of government. Now, when I was a public school teacher, I taught government. And I've studied government and different kinds of government all over the world. But whether it's a monarchy or a democratic republic or a dictator, whether you're under communism, the truth is that God is the one who established government. Verse 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. And so I want to give you three or four principles about how Christians are to relate to human government. Number one, principle one, we have to keep at the front of our mind that all human government is ordained by God. That is, it is his idea. As far as I can tell from the Bible, there are at least three institutions that God has ordained. Number one is marriage in the family. Now that started in the book of Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. So he created a helpmate and they began to multiply. So marriage and family is God's idea. The church clearly is God's idea where we have pastors and deacons and uh, church members, and he is the Lord over that. 
And then human government, we find here in Romans 13 and other places, was also ordained by God. This was his idea. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, it's a very important verse. You ought to commit it to memory. This has to do not only with government, but for everything that God has anything to do with. He says, let all things be done decently and in order. God is a God of order and not chaos. And when God starts something, when he has an idea about something, like marriage and family and the church and human government, he prescribes roles for that institution to function appropriately. In the family, we have husbands and wives and children, each have roles in the church. We have members, we have deacons, we have pastors, and in government we have those in authority and those under authority, but all of us are under God's authority. If you have a coin in your pocket, you can take it out. And our founding fathers declared that on every denomination of currency we have. In God, we trust, right? But not only in God we trust, uh, in their decorations, they said that we are under the authority of God. Our motto as a nation is under God. Now, human government, secondly, is a gift of common grace. Now, you recall that common grace means it's a gift or a blessing from God to all humanity, not just Christians. It's common to all people, all kinds of people. And we said when we were talking about marriage that you can go anywhere on planet Earth, any culture on planet Earth, and they have the concept of marriage because it was a gift given by God to all humanity, a gift of common grace. Well, human government falls into that category. Human government, every person, he says, is to be in subjection to governing authorities. I take there's no exclusions. And yes, if you're wondering, this includes you. This includes all Christians. Why is the question. He says, third principle, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Now, that is not to say that God approves of or endorses all the activities of every government. Don't go away saying I said that. Just as God doesn't approve of every activity of every husband or every wife or every pastor or every church member. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we believe and teach the sovereignty of God, which means that nothing happens that he either does not allow or cause. In other words, when there's election... God's not sitting on the edge of his seat watching for results. He is sovereign over all of that. So clearly, I hope we've established in your heart and mind right away that human government is God's idea. And because human government is God's idea, there's a fourth principle that must come to bear in our lives as Christians, and that is this. Failure to submit to God's institution of government is sin. Verse 2, he says, therefore, that is as a result of his premise that all government was ordained by God, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, sometimes that condemnation comes in the form of traffic tickets and prison Sometimes it comes in the form of God's condemnation, I think. Now, verse 6 says, For because of this, uh, that is, is the result of your recognition that God ordained human government and that to fail, a failure to submit to it is sin, 
Because of this, you pay your taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. Now, you say, well, wait a second. That's not why I pay my taxes. Well, there's two reasons he points out in these verses why we should pay our taxes. One is because of wrath. That is, if you don't, you fear the punishment that comes from the government, right? Maybe you'll be levied, your wages garnered. Maybe you'll go to jail if you go long enough without paying your taxes. But then he says, not only for wrath, I take that to be the wrath of the government, but for conscience sake. As Christians, we don't judge whether we do or don't do something simply based on the chances we might get caught. We do it because we want to keep a clear conscience. Now, a conscience is the mechanism that God has given every person that tells them what is right and what is wrong. And every person is born with one. Now, we can sear our conscience, the Bible says, through repeated disobedience. It's like when you take a hot brand and, and, and stick it to a cow's hide. After a time, they become insensitive there because of the scar tissue. We can desensitize our conscience through the brand of unbelief and sin in our life, but it's still there. It's just covered up. And I've known many a person whose conscience was seared. I remember when I did some prison ministry in Parchman Penitentiary many years ago. I met some men that, that I really believe would just as soon kill me as shake my hand. They would have thought no more about either one of those because their conscience had been seared. But for a Christian, if anyone's conscience should be active and sensitive, it's us who've been born again, who have received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So he says, Christian, pay your taxes, not just because you fear going to jail, but because you know it's the right thing to do. Well, if human government was God's idea, and clearly Paul says it is, what is its purpose? What is the purpose of government? That's our second point. For rulers, verse 3 says, are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. I think in that last phrase, we find the overarching purpose that God gave us human government, which is to suppress evil. Now, if we're going to say that, that the purpose of government is to suppress evil, we have to all agree on something. We have to have a common assumption, and that assumption is there is evil in the world. Can we agree to that? Just nod your head if you agree with that. Well, there is, of course, evil in the world. But unbelievably, that assumption is out the window in our modern culture. And so what it's been replaced with is the idea is that you have your truth and I have my truth. But we can't make a judgment call on someone else's beliefs or behavior and call them evil. In fact, calling anything evil is the only evil that exists among some people. To be so narrow-minded and bigoted to call another person's behavior evil is evil personified. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there is truth. Thy word is truth. See, to have good and evil in the world that makes any sense, you have to have an objective standard of judging that which is evil and that which is good. And for many, many years in our own country, that objective standard is the word of God. If you ever had to go to a court and 
give an affidavit or be a witness in a trial, what do they ask you to do? Put your hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the truth. I see a, a gentleman here who's one of our representatives. And Matt, they ask you to take an oath of office. And you did so on a Bible. And thank the Lord for people who are willing, Christians, and willing to serve in capacities like that. But there was an understanding that not only was there good and evil in the world, but the objective standard of good and evil is God and His Word. There's another assumption that we have to make when we see God's purpose for human government, and that is the depravity of man. Not only is there evil in the world, it is pervasive. It is ubiquitous. I said uh, in the past uh, to some of my interns who are single and wanting to be married that the only thing worse than not being married and wanting to be is being married and not wanting to be. I've seen people in that condition. And I'll, I'll say this, if you think things are bad today in our culture, and they are by any measurable standard, if you think things are bad today, imagine what things would be like with no government to suppress evil. I've heard there's a football game today. <laughs> Can you imagine going to a football game in which there were no rules, no officials, no government? Guy wants to run up into the stands on his way to the end zone, he can do that. People would be trampled. Can you imagine if, if all bets were off as far as how you could block? Maybe people would even bring weapons into the situation. The point being there have to be rules and government because people left to their own devices go to the logical conclusion of depravity, don't they? That's why we have police officers. That's why we have a national military. And I hear people on the news calling for the dissolution of police forces and the military. And I think how naive, that's not the word I usually use at home, but that's what I'll say here. <laughs> how naive do you have to be to believe that people will get along famously if we remove the threat of force? The Bible's not naive about man. The Bible says of man that his heart is desperately wicked and who can hope to understand it? So there's only one thing worse than living under a bad government, that's living under no government at all. So let's take a look thirdly at the authority of government. And by the way, before we go on, let, let's just say we have to assume government has authority, don't we? That's why it says to not only pay your taxes, but to give honor to who is due honor. There's a whole genre on the internet now of young people going around videotaping police officers, provoking them, cursing them, trying to goad them because they're not giving honor to whom honor is due. They're hiding behind their um, freedom of speech to say, I can say anything I want to say and you, you can't touch me. The Bible says it's not just staying two inches on this side of lawfulness, it's giving honor to whom honor is due. Did you know that Jesus recognized the authority of human government? Do you remember when he was standing before Pontius Pilate? A wicked man, a pagan man, standing in judgment over God in the flesh. But Jesus said to him, you would have no authority lest it was given to you from God. He didn't say you don't have any authority. He said this authority that you're exercising 
is on loan from God. Now what that means is that you will have to give an account to God. To whom much is given, much is required. Well, let's look thirdly, the authority of government. He says, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, clearly here, Paul is speaking proverbially. Now, there are different genres in the Bible. We believe that all the Bible is inerrant, but some of it's history and some of it's poetry. And I believe this is a proverb. A proverb is a general truth because Paul is certainly not naive. He's a very learned and experienced man. He's living under a tyrannical regime. He knows that Christians are going to be persecuted. After all, Paul himself lost his life to the Roman government. He is saying that when we obey the law and submit to authority, generally, government is a good thing. That's a principle. Government is good for us. It suppresses evil and protects us from our enemies. So, because it does, and it's given by God, government has the authority to back up its threats, he says, with a sword. Now, they didn't have pistols in those days. In our day, he would say the the power of the pistol, perhaps. But they mean the same thing. He means that government has the authority given by God to enforce the law. Now, this has implications in several areas of life and government. Number one is, is law enforcement. I'm so grateful for our men and women who protect and service in Keller and the, the Sounder regions, aren't you? Amen. Pray for them. Who... Um, put themselves in harm's way so that we may be protected. I'm also very thankful for our nation's military. Many of you have sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters who are serving in our military. And, um, we Christians typically have believed in the concept of a just war, that there are times when it is right and appropriate for good to protect evil. Now, Christians don't do that. Now, let's talk about separation of church and state a little bit. Remember I said from what Jesus said about um, render under Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God. They, they've created this notion of separation of church and state, which means God has nothing to do with the state, only the church. That's not what separation of church and state means. God is God over the church and the state, but the state and the church have very different functions. It's not the place of the church to enforce laws. You don't get to go outside and write traffic tickets in the name of the church, okay? Uh, and, and it's not the job of the church to create a state church, thank the Lord, that has the right to collect tithes and offerings as they would taxes. Those two things have separate functions. But the point is, God's sovereign over both of them, right? That's why it says, those who have political and governing authority are ministers of the Lord, and so think of that next time you're speeding down the street and you get pulled over. That person is enforcing the law as a minister of the Lord. Our military personnel, when they're engaged in a just war, are being ministers of the Lord. Our, our judiciary, it has implications there, this power of the sword. And I think it means that the government has the right of capital punishment. 
This is a principle throughout the both Testaments. Now, here's what we know to be true, though. This is why we need to be so prayerful for our government. The people who wear badges and the people who sit behind desks with a gavel in their hands are people. They're not superhuman. They are sinful just like all of us, and we know that sometimes people can't ha handle authority. They abuse it. We've seen in recent days how this can happen with tragic results. And so, therefore, we need to pray for them. Sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they abuse their authority. They are under obligation to obey the law just as any citizen is. You know what Paul says about it in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Listen to this. He's writing to Timothy and he says, First of all, which means of first importance, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He says it's good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior that you make of highest priority prayer for all men, including kings, in our case, presidents, governors, mayors, and not just those at the highest levels, but all who are in authority. I would take first responders and military personnel. Why? That we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life. That is, that they could fulfill their role of suppressing evil in the world with godliness and dignity. Now, I take this very literally. I have been incredibly disappointed with some of my evangelical friends who chant epitaphs at political authorities they disagree with, sometimes in church settings. No place for that. As Christians, we are to give honor to whom honor, not because we believe in that person's agenda or even their legislation, but because we recognize they're in that place of authority by the will of God. And not only should we give them that honor, the Bible says not just lip service, but everything we do we're to do as unto the Lord and not unto men. And I'm occasionally called upon to lead the invocation prayer at our city council chambers meeting and did so this past Tuesday night. I always try to say yes because I believe it's very important. This past Tuesday evening with this passage on my heart, Romans 13, I've been studying it for a couple of weeks, I, I prayerfully reminded our mayor and his underlings and all those who were present in the room that as mayor and as city manager and as council city men and women, they are in place not just because of the will of the people, but because of the sovereignty of God. And that they are ministers of God. And just as I'm a minister of God in the context of the local church, all of us will give an account for doing our jobs in a way that glorify Him. Well, does all of this mean that there are no limits on submission to government. That is, must believers blindly and silently obey no matter what legislation is passed? Well, certainly not. And uh, let, let's look at why not. Now, turn back towards the front of your Bible, just a few pages, and you'll come to the book of Acts. And come to Acts chapter 4. 
You know, in Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and power and uh, 3,000 people were saved in one day. And after that, the Lord was adding daily to the church such as were being saved. But eventually, life kind of got back to a rhythm. And one of the things that happened in the rhythm of life is that uh, people would go down to pray at the temple. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain and the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because of the teaching of the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were high priestly descent. When we had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name have you done this? Remember, Peter and John went down the temple to pray, and there was a man who had been lame since birth, and he was a beggar. And after all, in those days, they did not have social services. The only way he could make a living was by begging. And he held out his hand and he asked of them alms, money for the poor. And remember what Peter said, silver and gold have we none. They were Baptists, of course. Silver and gold have we none. But such as we have, we give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And immediately strength came into his legs and they were arrested because there caused such commotion in the temple. They placed them in the center, verse 7. They began to inquire, by what power and what name you've done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders by which came the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. See, there's a great principle here. If you get arrested for being a believer, use it as an opportunity to preach Jesus. That's what Peter did. Verse 13, now... As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply, but they ordered them to leave the council. They began to confer with one another. How can we shut these guys up? Saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact is that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them and apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Here's another principle. We ought to live such transparent, genuine lives that if we are arrested, no one could deny our practical righteousness. goes on. He says, "So, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. That is the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, and now hear this, here's the point, mark this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. (laughs) So here's the principle. The question is, 
Are there limitations to the authority of government as it relates to Christians and to the church? Yes, there are. Here it is. Christians should submit to the government until the government requires us to do one of two things. Number one, do something that God forbids. If the government says, we want you to rob the bank. If the government says, we want you to commit adultery. If the government says, uh, we want you to take a life in unjustly. God has forbidden all three of those things, would you agree? So we are under obligation first to obey God's word rather than human government. So we should submit to the government unless the government requires us to do something God forbids or to not do something that God commands. And so if the government, as they tried to do to Peter and John, says don't preach about Jesus anymore, we still preach about Jesus, right? This is the principle of Scripture in relating to human government. Now, let's be real honest. There are godly men and women, Christians, in prison and cemeteries all over the world today who are in prisons and cemeteries for following this principle. And may the Lord bless them. We stand on their shoulders. And because that is true, that there's always been men and women willing to die and go to prison for the sake of the gospel, there may come a day when those of us in this room, and certainly our children and grandchildren, may be compelled to go to jail for this principle or even die for it. And rather than living Pollyannishly and pretending that won't ever happen, we need to get prepared for that day. May God give us strength. May God give the next generation of First Baptist Keller members strength to obey God rather than man. Now last week we concluded the message about individual persecution. How are we to relate to our neighbors and our co-workers and our bosses who are non-Christians who are hostile to our faith? Remember what Paul wrote. He says, as much as is within you, live at peace with all men. He knew that some people would not have peace. And we said, if lost people hate the members of First Baptist Church of Keller, let's make them hate the kindest, most merciful, godly people they know. So let's conclude this way as, this week as we're talking about our relationship to human government. And, and I've just said to you, I'm under the belief that we, we may very well one day face real persecution from our government. If the government persecutes us, which is a real Existential possibility. Let's make them persecute model, tax-paying, law-abiding citizens. If they persecute us, let's make sure they're persecuting us because how closely we walk to Jesus and not for being poor citizens. There's a great difference in those two things. I've told this story before, and I won't tell it again. When I was in seminary, I had a classmate... He was always late, always late to class. I'm not talking about 30 seconds. I'm talking about 15 and 20 minutes. And it was clearly irritating our professor. And about the eighth time he came in late, this time about 18 minutes late, he made a big production about it, came in, threw his books down on the table, and sat down in his seat, made a great big sigh and said, y'all pray for me, the devil's out to get me. Why is the devil trying to get you, Brother Felix? I got another ticket today. And I said, Brother Felix, I wish you'd quit blaming the devil for every dumb thing you do. 
in Christian love I said that. <laughs> but, but you get the point. If we break the law, we have to pay the price, just like our lost friends and neighbors, right? So let's not break the law. Let's not bend the law. Let's say what we mean when we say we appreciate our law enforcement and our nation's military. Let's be good citizens. Does that mean if we're good citizens, we'll never suffer for our faith? Absolutely not. Paul got his head chopped off. It means that we can live with a clean and clear conscience. We can sleep well at night knowing that we've done the will of the Lord. Let's pray that you give us help to do that, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this very practical word. We all need to hear it. Lord, I suspect almost every adult in this room in the past few years has been frustrated by our government. And we're not naive. We're not Pollyannish. We're not living in a fantasy world where everything's fine. We know the truth. And yet we can't get away from the fact that Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us to be submissive to human government because it has the right to carry the sword. It has the right to enforce laws. And therefore, we should pay our taxes, not only for fear of the government, because it's the right thing to do. Our conscience bears witness to it. So, Father, I pray for myself. I pray that you'd not let one harsh, demeaning word escape my lips about those in authority. Help me to honor those who deserve honor because of the, the office therein that you have ordained. Help us all, Lord, to submit to the law. And Lord, if there comes a day where our government calls upon us to disobey you, give us the strength to resist that. Help us to follow the principle that Peter gives us in Acts chapter 4. Whether it is right to obey God or man, it's always right to obey you. Help us to do that in a way that honors you in the world. Help us to be model citizens, not only of your kingdom, but of the country in which we live. Do this for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.